We're, we're in the sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount series still. We have a couple more weeks on this. Uh, Jesus taught in Matthew 7. I, I have a fellow covenant pastor, a colleague, uh, who planted a church in California. He's a friend named Lynn and I know him, Ray Johnston. And uh, Bayside Covenant Church, it's just a small little church of like twelve to 14,000. Um, it's huge in California. They have many campuses. And uh, so anyway, Ray Johnson relays this story about when he went to a PGA golf tournament. Uh, he was invited by some church friends to go, and so he said, it's great, man. Like, I'll never, he said, I'll never forget that day. He said, I'll, especially I'll never forget the day when we were entering into the gate, and there was this guy who was standing at the gate, and he was preaching. He said, we joined the masses of the sweaty fans hiking through the enormous parking lot across the streets from the gates. As we got near, we could hear someone yelling, the wages of sin is death. He kept screaming it over and over where hundreds gathered to enter. And there were people with him holding cheery signs that said, hell is full of pagan and religious. It was not, it was so hot out there, uh, Ray, Ray thought to himself, man, they'd be better off handing out bottles of cold water and blessing people in the name of Jesus. But the man there was there every day of the golf tournament. And so Ray finally uh, went over to talk to the guy. He, he said uh, he thought he could help. I wanted him to add the rest of the verse, you know, the part that says, that includes the good news, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But he wouldn't stop screaming to talk to me. As I, and so I, uh, he said, I approached a man in back who seemed to be the one really in control, and so I tried to talk to him as well, but he wouldn't listen to me either. And fi I finally said, hey, you guys don't like to have conversations, do you? They just kept screaming over Ray. Well, many Americans view Christians as being self-righteous, headed to heaven, but really don't give other people the time of day to deal with their real issues. And two recent polls would would suggest that as well. In 2011, the first poll said that the percentage of Americans who have a favorable impression of Jesus would be 90%. And he said, that's great. You know, people like Jesus. They love Jesus. But then there was a second poll in 2014 that showed that only 42% liked evangelical Christians. Conclusion, people love Jesus. They don't like Christians. I suspect it's because they view Christians as being critical, uncaring, hypocritical, separatists, or pharisaical, judgmental. And so Jesus, not only in, in his, the Lord's Prayer where he says, forgive those who sin against us as we forgive those, and, you know, and he deals with it again at the end of the prayer. If, if you don't forgive those, then your Father won't forgive you. Well, he flips it on its, its side now when he says in verse 1, and do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So this morning we'll be looking at two unhealthy uh, attitudes of judgment and one healthy way to make correct or right judgment, as, as the Bible puts it. The two unhealthy ways would be a harsh form of judgment. It's a critical, pharisaical, legalistic attitude. And then the second is the exact opposite. It's a tolerant view a permissive view. It's a view of license. It says, who are you to judge me? There should be no judge judging anyone ever. 
So those are two opposite extremes and both are unhealthy. So the first one is this form of harsh judgment. It's legalistic. The Pharisees and scribes would have adopted this attitude as they heaped judgment upon many who failed to live up to the moral standards that the Pharisees had. Uh, For example, Simon the Pharisee objected uh, when this woman crashed the party that he was holding for Jesus. As they were eating there, um, this woman wandered into the house, as would have been okay in in those days, um, and, and she knelt near Jesus, and she started weeping, and her tears uh, dropped on Jesus' feet, and she washed his feet with the tears, and then dried his feet with her hair, and then anointed his feet with an expensive bottle of perfume. And so we read in Luke 7, when the Pharisee Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Well, the Pharisee created, Pharisees would create a special class for people like her, and they deemed them sinners as if they were above that or exempt from being sinners themselves. Another example, uh, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, ultimately for the cross, and he had to head through Samaria to get to uh, Jerusalem. So he sent some of his disciples ahead of himself to prepare the way for the night in Samaria. And we read in Luke 9, the people there in the village, in a Samaritan village, did not welcome him because they were Samaritans. And he was Jewish, and Jews and Samaritans didn't get along because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, James and John. Well, why did Jesus rebuke his disciples? Again, in Matthew 7, do not judge, or what? Or you will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus rebuked his disciples ultimately because he cared for them, and he cared for others. Our judgmental attitudes will ultimately boomerang upon ourselves, ultimately come back on us, right? If not during our lifetime, when we stand face-to-face with God in heaven, um, you take marriage, for example. Um, Marriage is difficult. Any relationship is difficult at times when you live 24-7 with the same people or person. And uh, there's a book called Marriage, Love, and Respect, um, and, and the chart up here says the crazy cycle. Uh, if a woman does not, um, if, they, if she doesn't, is not loved the way that she feels like she needs to be loved by her husband, then she will react and she'll withhold respect from her husband. And then her husband will, won't feel respected, and so he will refuse to love her. He'll just complain and they'll argue and, and bicker and, and they'll stay away from each other because they get caught in this crazy cycle, love and respect cycle. But it only really takes one to break the cycle. Judging happens even in the closest of our relationships. Uh, judging others, then Jesus said, not only will, will it boomerang upon you, but secondly, Judging is hypocritical, and that's not right for God's children to be hypocritical in verse 3 through 5. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your own eye, and, and um, look, a plank is in your own eye. You know, as a carpenter, Jesus probably would have enjoyed this illustration. In fact, it would have been really humorous. The original hearers would have busted a gut laughing because they would have envisioned this. We've heard it so often that we don't think, think much of it. But it'd be sort of like a Three Stooges um, black and white you know, movie where, uh, say, Larry has this big little piece of sawdust in his eye and then Moe has this big plank coming out of his forehead and he's trying to help Larry get that out. He walks up to him and every time he, help, he does this or turns around to do something, then Curly and Larry, they have to duck because this plank is going to whack him in the head, right? And so it would have been a comical scene. Um, and we can grant ourselves grace when we mess up so easily while we criticize others for doing the very same thing. For example, I might say, I am firm, but you, you're pig-headed. I, am recon I have reconsidered, but you're always changing your mind. I'm righteously ind indignant, but you make a fuss over nothing all the time. I am passionate. You are simply hysterical. I fight disinformation. You censor dissent. I am persuasive, but you are manipulative. I am frugal, but you are simply cheap. I'm thorough, but you're obsessive compulsive. And so the very same things, you know, we, we label others in a derogatory manner while we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We offer ourselves grace and mercy each and every day. We excuse ourselves from our little specks and justify our shortfalls when we're just as guilty. The Apostle Paul teaches all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Romans 2, he also says, you therefore have no excuses, you religious people, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever, whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Well, I'm not nearly as bad as those sinners, though. I mean, I mean, just look at their lifestyle and compare it. I mean, they live in that way, and I live this way. And Well, a physicist used this analogy. Each one of us is like a light bulb. One shines with 50 watts of holiness, whereas that guy, they only shine with 25 watts of holiness. They're not as bright. But then there's that teacher over there. He shines with, like, 100 or 200 watts of holiness. But then the sun comes out. God, the light comes out. And in the face of the sun, then all of our watts of holiness is trite. You know, lights don't mean a thing in comparison with the bright sun. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we need, we need to avoid this harsh legalistic attitude of judgment. But then there's a second Extreme, and that would be the, the license or the permissive view. You know, at all costs, we, we can't judge anyone. It's not right to judge anyone. Probably one of the most well-known verses from unbelievers, known by unbelievers, is you cannot judge. The Bible says do not judge or you'll be judged. In the same way, children, they get disciplined from mom and dad, and they slam the door and said, quit judging me. You can't judge. You call yourselves Christian parents. 
Um, You have no right to judge me. People say, live your lifestyle, and I'll live my lifestyle. You have no right to tell me how to live and impose your standards of morality on me. But ironically, these same people will shout disparaging comments at the refs for making bad calls at their kids' soccer game. Or they'll confront their kid's teacher for being unfair in the classroom. Or they'll call out another parent of a child for bullying their child. Or they'll voice their displeasure for the cold food and the bad treatment that they received at the restaurant. And they'll create a scene. Or they'll protest even with the police officer who pulled them over because they've been going 10 miles, they were going 10 miles over the speed limit. Well, how can you make any judgments whatsoever if, it's, if we can't make judgments? An attitude of complete tolerance will object, will say, we give them the right to determine what's fair, I'm sorry, what gives them the right to determine what's right and wrong, what's true and what's false, what's fair and unfair. Your judgment carries no weight with me, you have no right to judge me. So that's what Jesus said, right? Do not judge. And we would answer, that's not what he said, nor that's not what he means by what he said. In fact, in the very next sentence, look what Jesus said in verse 5. He calls out a hypocrite. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. Jesus, you just said don't judge, and you're calling me a hypocrite? Is that not a judgment call? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In verse 15, a few verses later, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. How can we not judge and and demonstrate that type of attitude toward the false prophets? How can we discern? 1 John, we're told by Apostle John, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether you are there from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there seems to be room for us to make judgments. In fact, Jesus said such in John 7 when he said, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. How can we determine if we're judging correctly or not? I have a series of five questions that we can ask ourselves. Number one, am I aware of my own sin? Again, going back to the question of humility. You hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, deal with yourself. You're looking in the mirror. Take the plank out of your own eye. The London Times once asked a number of prominent people in England to write essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? One English pastor G.K. Chesterton replied in a letter, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That's an attitude of humility. Or as um, Billy Graham's, I think, son-in-law or son, yeah, son-in-law said, here is one way I can know that I've forgotten the gospel of grace. When your sin bothers me more than my own, So do I, uh, am I aware of my own sin? Secondly, ask, do I confront others in love? 
or I do, do, I do it out of anger and out of you know, frustration and disgust and all that. Jesus Called book by Ray Johnston, the man I referred to, um, he talks about a conversation he had with Mark Burnett and the TV star Roma Downey, who was touched by an angel actress. Well, they came together and they produced these two blockbusters, the Son of God movie and the Bible television series. I remember we taped, taped it on DVR a while back and watched them all and went through the entire Bible. And, and they did so as an evangelistic tool to reach the lost. And they were powerful. They were incredible. I loved them. After the shows, though, uh, Pastor Ray Johnson was talking to them at a conference and they indicated that they were really prepared for a secular um, media backlash. They were, they were ready to take it, but then they were not prepared, though, for the great number of angry letters they received from Christians who disagreed with their take on the Bible. They got tons of them. And then they commented, man, it's interesting that we never had one letter saying you aren't patient or you are not kind or any other such fruit of the Spirit. And then they made this point, why, why do we get so worked up about all these agendas and yet remain so blasé about Jesus' agenda, about the things that really matter? And I think they're right. Do we confront and love? Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love, is, love always protects Love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In other words, you know, love gives people the benefit of the doubt. Even when they do something that you disagree with or make a decision that offends you or whatever, give people the benefit of the doubt first and have a civil conversation with people. Because love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. In other words, love desires the best for your neighbor, for your brother or sister in Christ. Philippians 2, Paul says, in humility, it starts with humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own, own, in, own interests, but the interests of others. So like if your child comes in crying with a sliver in their finger and they say, Mom, Dad, please help me, it hurts, it hurts, take it out. Are you gonna leave it in there or are you gonna help them to remove the sliver? And obviously, we're loving parents. We don't get angry at our kids for getting a sliver in their finger. We, we help them. You know, you hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. We're removing the specks from others' eyes and making judgments because we love them and we care for them, and we don't want to see them in pain. It's not because we're disgusted in them and we're frustrated and we just want to, you know, put them in their place. It's, it's done in love, you know. We, you can have all the knowledge, all the truth, Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 13, but without love you are simply an annoying, clanging gong when you have truth above relationship. Love aims to restore you know, Paul did this in 1 Corinthians when they had to discipline a man who was creating havoc in the church in Corinth. A lot of division and his false teaching. And, and he instructed the church to don't, don't accept it, remove it. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, after the man had repented, he said, hey, welcome him back and reaffirm your love for him. Because 
Paul's intent was always restoration and for the betterment of, of the person, even the disobedient. So there's a third question. When I confront others, am I displaying gentleness and respect? Galatians 6, Paul says it this way, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, a sin that might really disturb you and anger you, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Gentleness. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and working in you, in us. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. What's the great temptation? Well, it's pride, it's arrogance. You know, they're wrong, I'm right. Do I display gentleness and respect? Fourth, do I leave room? Do I leave leave the judging up to God? You see, because God alone is omniscient. He's the only one who can see the big picture. Only he can discern one's heart's motives. As they said about David and the choosing of the next king in 1 Samuel, we look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord sees the heart. We do not. Only God knows one's brokenness and history that causes them to act a certain way, or, or only God sees the big picture of the journey. Austin Regeer is a leader in our town. He's a director of Step MC, and he came and spoke at a Crescendo event down the hall um, about, I don't know, a year ago or so. And he asked us there gathered, he asked us a few questions. He said, how many of you, be honest here, we're, we're amongst friends, how many of you become critical of people who live paycheck to paycheck when they're constantly buying all these extra large styrofoam soft drinks? You know, filling them up, and you know they don't have a lot of money, or you might even know them, and yet they keep buying, and we kind of raise their hands. Yeah, we get critical, and, and I do too. But then he said, I kind of know the stories of people. What if you knew that they were drinking these large Cokes every day because they're really trying to quit smoking? Then would you be as critical? No, we wouldn't, you know, you know it, because it's a lesser evil, at least for the time, and, and so, okay. And, and they kind of need something as they're quitting smoking. Or, or, and then he took it a step further. How many have become critical with people laying paycheck to paycheck uh, who smoke cigarettes? And they buy packs of cigarettes at the gas station, And yeah, definitely, man, they spend all this money on cartons of cigarettes and here they are, they don't have food or they have to pay rent. I get that. But he said, what if you learn that they continue to smoke because they've recently chosen to stop taking meth? Well, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, you know, smoke, I'm not justifying smoking, but at least it's it's a crutch until they can get over the addiction of meth in their journey toward wholeness. Matthew 13, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds of people growing even in the body of, or in the church, growing side by side. We can't distinguish the difference between wheat and weeds, the darnell. You know, it's very difficult to, to tell by the, I guess. And so the disciples said, hey, 
Um, should we yank him up? Do you want us to pull him up, Jesus, the, the weeds? He said, no, speaking of unbelievers in their midst, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first, collect the weeds and then tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. In other words, there will be a judgment day, but God's the judge, and he's the only one who can truly see the heart. Everyone else is on a messy journey, and sometimes we look unsaved by our actions, sometimes saved, and we don't really know at times. And so he said, leave the judgment up to me. Your job is to love. God's job is to judge. Um, and then an, another question, am I wise in the way I treat outsiders? Outsiders. Paul said, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Always. Not sometimes, but always when dealing with outsiders. 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, those disgusting sexually immoral people. Don't associate with them. But I didn't mean the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. We're placed in the world to be lights to the world, and lights are meant to go into the darkness. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so how should we treat those outsiders? Well, kind of in the same way Jesus did, right? God so loved the world that he gave his son to us who are all outsiders. Uh, Luke 19, for the Son of Man did not come to seek or I'm sorry, he came to seek and save the lost. But then you might think, there are outsiders, and then there are outsiders. I mean, those who blatantly attack Christians, those who are enemies of the cross, those who are, um, there's evil people. Surely you don't want me to love those people, do you, Jesus? Well, Jesus said, well, yeah, I, I think I came up with something that said something like, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And, and then, well, that was Jesus. Certainly Peter and Paul, they couldn't carry that out. That's, well, Peter said in First Peter, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. And, and this goes for the internet too, by the way. Um, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. We need to look different from the world and respond differently from what the world, how the world responds, what comes naturally to the fallen person. The Apostle Paul said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Those who persecute you, bless. Do we do this? Because that's how we shine like lights, the light of Christ. We need, we need to win people with kindness, by building a relationship, and that's wisdom. That's what it means to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. But, final point, we can act in the name of truth, gospel truth, we can act in ways that will exacerbate wrath from others. 
if we force truth on others before we build a relationship with them, before we at least have the dignity of living in conversation, then we're going to be like that guy out in front of the PGA, you know, just yelling, you're all sinner, you're all going to hell, basically. Uh, I'm sure that did wonders for the gospel. Um, in fact, um, David put it this way in Proverbs, or Solomon, I should say. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. So there's wisdom in the way we treat outsiders, right? Matthew 10, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, then leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Don't force the gospel or the truth on people who don't want to hear or with whom we do not have relationship because it will be taken as an offense because they won't care until they know that you care. And then Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before the pigs, before pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They'll just simply retaliate and that won't serve the gospel. Love your enemies. So there's a lot to think about, isn't there? When it comes to judgment, you know, Jesus gave us the impossible task, and it's impossible because we can't do it. We all fall short in this category on a regular basis. But we can't do it on our own. We can do it with Christ in us. And we'll sing about that as we conclude. So, Lord, as, as we uh, consider uh, your words to us, Lord, your very, very challenging words to us, you hold us to a much higher standard than you do those who are unsaved, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we confess our sin before you, and we ask you to change us, uh, transform us, make us more like Jesus, Lord, who loved even the enemies as he hung on the cross. He forgave those who hated him and spewed insults at him, Lord Jesus. May we have the same attitude as the attitude of Christ, I pray. Amen.